Please do turn with me to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Our plan this morning is to introduce this letter and to show its purpose, its key lessons, and then to look at the first few verses in particular. Our subject this morning is faith, love, and hope in that order. There is a reason why Paul will explain in verses 4 and 5 how a true Christian has saving faith, and as a result, the evidence, one of the evidences is they will have love for all the brothers and sisters who are in Christ. That will be the chief hallmark. It will be the clothes. It will be the heart that drives that man, that woman, that child, that they will have love for all the saints. And then because of that evidence, that demonstration that the faith that they have is not intellectual, but it's living, they will also have a great hope, the greatest hope. It's called the hope which is laid up for them in heaven. Not for everybody, but only for those that have saving faith. Well, that's the summary of what we shall consider today. But first, by way of introduction, what is this letter to the Colossians? Where was Colossae? And what are the particular reasons why this letter was written by the Apostle Paul? It seems as though Paul never even visited Colossae. Colossae is about a hundred miles away from Ephesus, and that's where Paul spent two years, a hundred miles away to the west. We know that Colossae existed. There is evidence for that, archaeological evidence. Colossae was one of three towns or cities, as we call them. One was Hierapolis. We read of that in chapter 4. And the second, you know that much better, was Laodicea. And again, there is clear evidence for these three towns. This is real history. This is real truth that is being put before us. The three towns, they're in a sort of triangle. They're no more than a day's journey away, 10, 15 miles. And again, we can see the evidence. Hierapolis, if that's the right pronunciation, I often get corrected for not pronouncing things the way that you've been used to. But that's the way I pronounce it. Hierapolis, it was famous for health and for pleasure. Laodicea was famous for trade and commerce. You know of Laodicea because the seven letters to the individual churches recorded in Revelation 2 and 3, the seventh one was written to Laodicea. We know it because it has a famous but not very flattering reminder, Laodicea, 
was the church that was neither hot nor cold. Oh, I hope that's never said of us. We don't want to be neither hot or cold. A wishy-washy, lukewarm kind of church. That was Laodicea. Hierapolis, Laodicea, and the third place where Paul writes, but the three churches are known because Epaphras, who's the pastor of the church here at Colossae, he also visited the other two churches. That's very clear. What's Colossae famous for? It's famous for its red dye. Evidently, there was an industry there which dyed the cloth a bright red color. It's a small town and it's pagan. Mostly the people there worshipped idols. We know that there were many Jews there. There is some evidence that as many as 11,000 Jews were settled there at that time. And so it was a mixed town. And the church was to have problems. It was a multiracial church. That's very clear. Jews and Gentiles and some of the problems that they would have that Paul is going to address, problems that stem from the fact you've got different types of people. The Jews, the former Jews, some of them would say, you need to worship God this way. You need to keep certain ceremonies. You need to dress in a particular way. You need to eat particular things. That was the Judaizers. And those who were converted out of idolatry and paganism, which emphasize what you can see and smell and touch, these people would say, well, we need to go back to a more sensual, a more physical form of religion. And even worse than that, they would say, we can go back to the way that we used to live, that emphasize the immoral. And we can even bring such things into our worship of the one true living God. So you have these two extremes. And the church will be attacked from inside and from outside. And we see within the church at Colossae some problems that Paul, even though he's never met them, and because of that the church is not quite so, the, the letter rather is not quite so warm and personal, as Ephesians and Philippians is, it's a little bit cold. It's dealing with specific errors and problems, and Paul has to deal with them quite directly. And so we read here of a church. It's a new church. It's very diverse, a bit like Bedford. Bedford has so many nations, and I'm so glad that our church here this morning, it's representative of many nations, 
Different ages, different backgrounds, that's how we should be. That's how heaven will be. But inevitably, when you have different people from different places, we need to learn how to get along. We need to learn how God says we should live. And we need to leave some of the cultural, some of the preferences from our past at the door. There's nothing wrong with culture, providing it's not sensual, providing it's not pagan, providing it lifts up things which are good and true and right. But we don't want culture to enter the church which conflicts with the word of God. And that's really what the purpose of Colossians is going to be about. Paul is concerned. This little church, it might go back, it might relapse, it might slide back into bad practices. There was a particular problem, we call it technically Gnosticism, and it said something like this. It said that Christ is not sufficient. You can have Christ and other things. You don't have to believe that Christ was the only creator. You can believe in other things. It said that Christ wasn't actually human. Because God is a spirit, how could Christ be literally human? That's what was being taught. And in its place came philosophy, human philosophy, intellectualism. That's referred to in Colossians 2.8. There was ceremonialism, ceremonies, rites, rituals. That's referred to in Colossians 2.11. There was even angel worship, not worshipping the one true living God through Christ and the Holy Spirit, but they were worshipping angels. That's mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 18. And there was something called asceticism, subjecting the body to a physical form of torture because the people said that will make you more holy. If you have some form of suffering as Christ did then you can enter into the suffering that he had. But that's not right because Christ suffered once for sin. Yes, we may be called to suffer through trials and troubles and because we live in a fallen world, but we don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to cut ourselves. We don't have to cause pain unnecessarily to our bodies. That wouldn't be right. And so these are things that were being taught. Some of them are not so relevant today. I don't think we see angel worship quite so often. But human philosophy, 
Humanism, humanistic teaching is all around us. And ceremonialism, bringing into the church rituals that are physical, sensual, appealing to the eyes and to the ears and to the senses, that happens today. That's a big issue. We've seen that, haven't we, with the funeral of the late Pope, worshipping with incense and lifting up the physical and the pictorial and the grand ceremony. But the word of God says we worship in spirit and in truth. It says we don't emphasize the physical. Yes, we have to meet together. We have a building. We want it to be tidy, orderly, decent, suitable, functional. But we don't worship the building. We worship the one who is the cornerstone, Christ. And we are living stones which are erected on this spiritual building. What about asceticism? Do we see that today? Well, we do. People think that in order to be pleasing to God, they've got to do something to themselves physically. Martin Luther, he wore a hair shirt. He thought it would deal with his own sin. We can't deal with our own sin. There is but one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can atone for my sin and your sin. So these are very real topics, issues, problems that come into churches. I don't think that I'm dealing with specific problems in this church. But we have to guard before a problem is a problem by understanding so it doesn't become a problem. And that's what Paul can help us with today. So this is a letter that's very real. It's relevant to the day and age we live in. What's Paul's method? Well, he's got a threefold method, as he often does. He needs to warn of the dangers. If you don't know about the danger... How can we stop it coming in? Some churches, they don't like to talk about dangers. It has to be all lovely, all encouragement, all positive. But that's not the word of God. The New Testament warns. Pastors have to warn. We have to say such and such is a danger in your life, in this church. And that way we protect. That's the loving way to operate. That's what Paul does. He warns, this is a problem. And secondly, he says, the solution to that problem is not this, this, and this. False solutions, and he will identify those. But you know the chief purpose of Colossians is glorious. If there is a key to unlock the whole of this letter, it's here in chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. Open the letter. 
with these two verses. This is what Paul says. For it pleased the Father that in him, Christ Jesus, should all the fullness, whose fullness? The fullness of the Godhead should dwell, live, be turned into a person so that we could see him, so that we could hear him, so that we could know he was real. For it pleased him that the Father, for it pleased the Father that in him all fullness, completeness, reality should dwell. Verse 20. And having made peace, he lived, he demonstrated through his power, through his teaching that he was and is the Son of God, but then he made peace. What do we need? Peace with God. Peace with each other. How did he do that? Through the blood of his cross. That by him, by his life, by his death, he would reconcile. I'm apart. I'm away from God. I'm an enemy. I need to be reconciled. This is what the gospel is. It brings me back to God, where I should be, where I should live. It reconciles through the blood of the cross. Why do we make such a big thing of the blood of Christ? Because it's the, the foundation, it's the source, it's the ground of our hope. The blood of Christ that can take away my sin so that there's no longer a problem between me and my God. It reconciles all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and so on. That's the book. Those two verses. That's what this is about. Christ is preeminent. What does that mean? Nothing surpasses. Nothing is higher. Nothing is greater. Nothing is more valuable. Nothing is more precious than Jesus Christ. That's this letter. That's the whole of the word of God. In two verses... How can I be made right with God? Christ has done it. He's done it once. We don't need to keep on lifting up Christ on a cross. He's died once. We don't need to keep having his blood. We have pictures through the elements of the Lord's table. They're reminders, visual aids. It's not the actual blood of Christ. His blood has once been shed. And so this is Paul's method. There's the danger. There's a false solution. And here is the only solution. The preeminent, all-surpassing, all-sufficient Christ You come this morning, you have a need, 
I don't know your need. I know some of your needs within the family circle. Within life, I don't know all your needs. You don't know my needs. What's the solution to our needs this morning? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is all-sufficient. He's above, he's beyond everything else. We don't put anything else in the place of Jesus Christ. We don't put therapy, that can help, but we don't put it in the place of Christ. We don't put any other truth in the place of Christ, who is the truth. We don't lift up a person in the place of Christ. Christ is preeminent. We don't have a Pope who's beyond the church. We don't lift up the church. We don't lift up a pastor. We don't lift up a parent. Christ is all-sufficient. He is everything I need and more besides. And that was the problem in the church. There was competition. There was other things coming in. And that's why Paul writes this letter. That's the introduction. That's the key to unlock it. So let's look at the first verse. We won't get very far this morning. Paul comes by letter, not physically. He's had a report He's had a report from the pastor, Epaphras. And the report is mostly good. We'll look at the good bits. They're mentioned here in the first few verses. But there's the other bits as well that he's going to respond to. And so he says, Paul, who's he? Who's Paul? You've never met him. Why should we listen to Paul? Why should you read his letter and then read it in the other two churches? He tells us it's specifically to be read in Laodicea later. Paul says, well, here's my qualification. I'm an apostle. An apostle. What does that mean? Well, somebody who is sent. Somebody who's been given special powers to authenticate, to authorize the message that he brings before the word of God is complete. Paul says he didn't come because he chose to be an apostle. No, he's an apostle by the will of God. Paul, you've not self-appointed. You've not decided that you would be an apostle. It was God's Will. Do you know most of the disciples became apostles? Therefore, most of the apostles were disciples. They were with Christ. They had a three year training program. That's what Christ did in his earthly ministry. He preached and taught, but he also instructed those who would become apostles. But Paul wasn't one of them. Paul wasn't there. He didn't become a Christian for three years after Christ rose from the dead. How could he become an apostle? 
Because Paul calls himself an apostle born out of due season. He wasn't one of the disciples. And therefore he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am an apostle born out of due season. He calls himself the least of the apostles. Is he just being humble? No. He didn't have the qualifications that they had. There was two of them. You needed to be with Christ and you needed to be taught by Christ and you need to have an eyewitness to the resurrection. The other disciples all saw the risen Christ, but Paul also saw the risen Christ. It came three years later. He's on the road to Damascus. The bright light came. The voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for your conscience to speak against you because you know what you're doing is wrong. Murder. Persecution. No wonder Paul calls himself an apostle born out of due season. He did see Christ. He would be taught. And therefore he was an additional apostle and he was able to perform what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, if you want the vital proof text, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. How did you know somebody was an apostle? They'd been taught by Christ. They were in his seminary, except for Paul, and one or two exceptions, and they saw the risen Christ, or they were empowered to perform miracles. This is a million miles away. From what we hear of today, with people's snake oil hypnotherapy techniques, you go and look on the internet, you look on the God channel, and you will see Apostle so-and-so, and he hires Wembley, or hires a big building and says, Apostle so-and-so will heal people. They'll be able to throw away their wheelchairs. They'll be able to do so and so. And is that right? Do they? Well, we go back to the word of God and we say, what were the hallmarks of an apostle? It's very clear. And I've given you those. Paul is an apostle born out of due season. He did see the risen Christ and he could perform miracles. He could pick up a snake and it wouldn't heal him. It wouldn't hurt him. He could heal people with a word. Real miracles. Not the fakes and not the phonies. Paul an apostle and Timothy are brothers. So that's the greeting. I just say that. Secondly, Let's come to the more positive. What's this letter? Who's it written to? 
Is it written to all people? No, it's written to one church. What's a church? A church is a gathering of people who've come to hear the word of God and to worship and to meet together. Is that all? No. They're called saints. A saint is not somebody we lift up and venerate and worship. A saint is you and me. If we love Christ, if we've been saved out of this world, if we name his name as our Lord and Saviour, we're called saints. Set-apart ones. Not good people. Oh, so-and-so, Mother Teresa, she's called a saint because she did this and did that and no, no, no. The word of God defines a saint as somebody that's been chosen by God. They're not good people, but they're being made good. They're being made holy. They're in the process of having their daily sins dealt with. Yes, before God they're clean, but there is that ongoing sin. And it's being dealt with day after day. These people, they've been set apart. Who were they at Colossae? Well, we know it was Epaphras. We know that Philemon was there. We know that probably his wife, because it's a female name, Aphia, and their son, Archippus, mother, son, father, Probably the church met in their home. It tells us that in Philemon. And we know that there was the runaway slave, Onesimus, because Paul had told him to go back to Philemon. So we know quite a few that met together and were members in the church at Colossae. So it's a church of saints. But what else does Paul call them? Faithful brethren. That's a lovely term, isn't it? Brothers and sisters. The people in that church, they're now a family. They're not just people off the street that have never met each other before. They're not people that have got nothing in common. They're not people who've got blood relations. Christ's blood. They are faithful brethren. They've been called together, set apart. They're meeting together as a family in a specific location to worship Christ and to take the gospel to pagan Colossae. They're brethren. Why? Because they're in Christ. They didn't choose to be part of that church Christ chose them, and they're faithful. We thought about that earlier. They have a characteristic of being there for one another. Faithful to God, faithful to his word, faithful to each other, faithful to the truth, faithful to the gospel, to the saints, and faithful brethren in 
Christ. That's a Christian, somebody who's in Christ, and Christ is in them. And they gather together for a time, because a church changes. People come, people go, people are called home, children are born, and then they're saved, and they join the church. It's organic, it's moving, it's changing. But this is the church at Colossae. What is a Christian? A saint, a called out one, somebody that's got a family likeness to Christ. Brothers and sisters that are bound together and they're faithful in Christ. Well, thirdly, and we close with this, Paul addresses them. And he's going to use three different words in a very specific order. He's going to address them with these words and he gives thanks. He'll do that three times in this letter. He says, we give thanks to God because every child of God who's been made a Christian is only what they are because of what Christ has done for them. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He's not met them, but he prays for them. That's what we do in the prayer meeting. We pray for people we've never met. We hear about them. We hear about their faith. We pray for a dear brother and his three sons in Ukraine who this very day will be taking Bibles and food and clothes to people that have no electricity. We've never met him. But we know he's a faithful brother. We believe he is. He's a saint. He's in the church in Chernihiv. We pray for him. That's what Paul did. He prays for the church at Colossae. What stands out? Three words. Verse 4. We heard about your faith. There's two words for faith in the Bible. We speak about living faith. A faith that lives and breathes. Sometimes it falls, then it lifts up. Sometimes it's on a mountain and we see all of God's goodness. Sometimes it's down. That's living faith. But that's not what he refers to here. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is saving faith. It's a gift from God. I can't work it up. I don't earn it. It's not because of what I do or what I am or where I was born or my nationality. It's my faith in Christ. I have to exercise it. It could stay there. God has given you the gift. You've never done anything with it. You haven't really believed and trusted and left the world and said, my hope is in heaven, my hope is not here. And therefore you succumb to fear and temptation and sin. 
But these people, they have a faith in themselves? No. No point in that. In Christ Jesus. That's the basis of their, their faith. This is saving faith. And they've heard the gospel. Paul was in Ephesus. He would have sent people. Epaphras goes there. He preaches the gospel. And these people believe in the risen Christ. They leave their pagan gods. They leave the immorality of that place. And they trust in Christ for eternity. That's saving faith. And it naturally leads on to something else. Verse 4. And of the love. You see, faith, saving faith, it's not theoretical. It doesn't keep itself to itself. It doesn't stay at home. It sees needs. It sees the lost. It sees people who are without Christ and without hope. That's what it says here. We heard of your faith and naturally the outpouring, the outworking, the evidence of that faith which ye have to who? Just to your family. No, it doesn't say that. Just to your wife? No. Just to the people in your street? No. Which you have to all saints. Not just in this country or town. All saints. Think back to the ancient time. There were those still being persecuted. There were many. This is A.D. 61, 62, 63, when Paul is writing, the persecution is spreading. Jerusalem hasn't yet been burned with fire. The believers are spreading and the gospel is going. This is God's plan. Do you think there was relief work to be done? Oh, lots of it. Do you think there were believers losing their jobs because of their faith? Thousands of them. Do you think there were people who were going before the courts and being sentenced for crimes they hadn't done? Many of them. What were their prayer meetings about? Oh, so-and-so's got a sore knee. Well, that's true. So-and-so's got a bad back. We must pray for them. Well, that might be true. And it might stop them doing their work and teaching the Sunday school. We pray for them. But don't you think their prayer meetings were about other people? Saints who were persecuted. The gospel going to Laodicea, Hierapolis. Don't you think it was about believers being persecuted? People that don't have the word of God. Those poor people worshipping idols. Bowing down to gods they don't know. That's what they prayed about. Because their love, their saving faith, demonstrated itself 
because they had a love for all people. They didn't let trivial things get in the way. They focused on the mission. They focused on the matters at hand, taking the gospel out. And their love had traveled a hundred miles to Paul in prison in Rome. He'd heard about them. He'd heard about their faith. And he'd heard about the evidence. Love. Love in the heart? Yes. Love in the mind for Christ? Yes. And love that's demonstrated. Evidence, practical, seen, heard, witnessed. How do we live in this world? We demonstrate by our good works, not to save us. No, that could never be. We demonstrate by our good works. That's our light and our salt and the people see us and they say, see how they love one another. Look at their kindness. Look at the way they collect the children from the estates. Look at the way they teach the children and they give them things if they need them. They apply themselves to the work of the gospel. Thirdly, Paul had heard about their faith. He's heard about their love. It's very practical. But there's a third word. You only have the hope if you have the love, because then you'll have assurance. And you only have the love if you've got the faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. What's this hope? It's not a wishy-washy, vague hope. It's a certain treasure store. It's riches laid up in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven, we sing with the children, for the great accounting day. Lay up treasure in abundant measure for the great accounting day. What's this all about? This is the fact that one day, all who have saving faith in Jesus Christ and who have a living faith because their faith is evidence in heaven is being laid up for you. Look at the tense. For the hope which is, not was, is being laid up for you. What is that treasure? Well, we're taught elsewhere that those who are faithful will be rewarded. There will be an even greater reward for them. I don't know how, I can't explain it. But the people who are faithful, there will be laid up for them an even greater reward, which is laid up and going on being laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of truth. What's the gospel? We'll look at this another day. The gospel is the word of truth. And that's what they heard. Because they heard the truth and heard the gospel, they had saving faith because they believed. And their faith was seen and heard. 
And they have this tremendous faith and this tremendous love and this astonishing hope. And that hope is the anchor for the soul. That's how it's described. That anchor for the soul, the hope that is laid up for us, that's enough for this morning. Faith, love, hope. May we each know what one of these and all of these are. Let's see.